Today we are embarking upon a new study in God's Word. We're going to begin a study of the second letter to the Corinthians that we have in our Bibles. It is the eighth book in the New Testament. It's right after Romans and then 1 Corinthians. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have available for you, you can find it beginning on page 964. It's a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had planted in the city of Corinth in the middle of the first century. We read the account earlier from Acts chapter 18 of how that church was planted. Corinth was a very important city in the first century of the Roman Empire. It was located in a very strategic place. It's in a very narrow neck of land between the main body of Greece and Peloponnese. And on the west there is a sea, on the east there is a sea, the Adriatic Sea on the west and the Aegean Sea on the east. And there were ports on both of those seas right next to Corinth. It was in the middle, it's about four miles between those two seas. And because the Peloponnesian Peninsula was so treacherous for sailors to sail around, Very often, the preferred way of transversing that piece of uh, of real estate was to come into one of those ports and then to actually port the ship, to to take the merchant ship with slaves and carry it for the four miles or so to the other sea and then continue on. In fact, there was a saying with sailors that were venturing south around the Peloponnesian Peninsula that before you make that sail, you need to write your will. It was a treacherous route. And so they would take this uh, preferred way over this little area of real estate. Consequently, that made Corinth a crossroads for the Greek world, a crossroads between Europe and Asia. Nearby Corinth, there was a little city by the name of Isthmia. And it was the headquarters for uh, a biannual series of games, much like the Olympic Games, but it happened every two years. And so people from around the Roman Empire would come into Isthmia to celebrate those games, to watch those every couple of years. And that also helped to contribute to make Corinth a center of commerce. It helped to bring great wealth to that city in the first century. It was a Roman colony, in fact, a very important Roman colony. Rome had previously destroyed old Corinth, classic Corinth in 146 BC. But then Julius Caesar, about a hundred years later, rebuilt it. And so by the time that Paul got there, around AD 50 or so, the city was still very young, less than a hundred years old, but it already become one of the most important and wealthiest cities in the empire. It had a very international and cosmopolitan flair about it. It was known as the crossroads of Greece. It was a thoroughly pagan city. There were all kinds of monuments, all kinds of shrines in Corinth that were devoted to pagan gods and goddesses. There were small temples throughout it as well. There was a temple to Asclepius, the god of medicine, the god of health. There was a very prominent temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sensuality. It stood at the highest point of the city And at one time, that temple of Aphrodite had over a thousand prostitutes that serviced the worshipers of Aphrodite. It was also the center of an imperial cult that had developed 
around the superiority of Caesar over all gods. And so there was the worship of Caesar in Corinth. Corinth in the first century was something of a boomtown. It was a place that people would migrate to, especially immigrants would migrate to, in order to look for greater opportunity, a better life. When Paul first visited there, it was still relatively young. It was made up primarily of Gentiles, those who were not Jews, though as we heard from Acts 18, there was a significant Jewish population there, a community there that, surrounded, that was involved in synagogue and synagogue worship and created great difficulties for Paul. One writer has called Corinth the vanity fair of the first century Roman Empire. It was known for its sensual, illicit pleasures. Any immoral pleasure that you desired could be found in Corinth. In fact, it became a proverb to refer to Corinthianize something was to engage in sensual immoralities. It meant to give yourself over to any indulgence in immoral activity that you desired. Paul had a very deep and somewhat at times troubled relationship to the church that he planted in Corinth. He traveled there around A.D. 49 or 50. It was his second missionary journey. He had been in Athens, and if you read Acts 17, you'll see some of the difficulties that he experienced in Athens at the hands of those uh, pseudo-intellectual philosophers that wanted to just ride him out of town with scorn and shame. And so he went to Corinth somewhat discouraged in his efforts. The Lord came to him by vision and encouraged him to stay there. And so he did stay there for about 18 months. After he got there, he was joined by two of his companions, Timothy and Silas. He met two others there who were also tent makers. And together with them, they preached the gospel. They saw people converted and a church established. And he stayed there a year and a half. After he left Corinth, he went to Ephesus. And he stayed in Ephesus for three years preaching the gospel and establishing that church in that city. Sometime after he got to Ephesus, because of trouble in the church at Corinth that he heard about, he took a quick trip back to Corinth. It didn't last long and it wasn't evidently well planned out. Probably took it by boat. He got there in order to try to address some very serious, specific problems that had arisen not long after he had departed. This particular trip to Corinth is known as the painful visit that he made. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, you'll see Paul refer to this. He said, I made my mind up not to make another painful visit. He's talking about that visit that he made quickly after he had left there to head to Ephesus. Paul speaks in chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians about his intention to go to Corinth again. And he says, it will be the third time that I come to you. So he's referring to the time he went and stayed for 18 months and then left to go to Ephesus and went back on a painful visit. And now he's contemplating going back on a more intentional, well-planned, extended visit. In fact, Paul had planned prior to this to have a second extended visit in Corinth, but he had not followed through on those plans. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 16, as he brings that letter to a close, he says this in verse 5 and following, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter 
so that you may help me on my journey wherever I may go. For I do not want to see you just now in passing by. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Now, that visit, 1 Corinthians 16, when he says, here's what I'm planning to do, that visit never took place. Didn't happen. So he'd written them, told them, I hope to come and have an extended visit with you. And yet here we are now, a couple of years later, and he has not yet had that extended visit. And so part of what he does in this second Corinthians letter is explain why he didn't do what he had planned to do when he wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians 16. So if you look at the first chapter, 2 Corinthians and verses 15 through 23, listen how he explains why he didn't do what he had planned to do. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 15, he says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. That was his desire. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. That's what he'd written in 1 Corinthians 16. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. So Paul writes in part to explain why he didn't do what he had planned to do, what he wrote to them that he would do in 1 Corinthians 16. The church at Corinth that he had established was very quickly filled with problems. They lived in a very immoral culture, as I've already mentioned, and that cultural way of living and thinking infiltrated the church in many ways so there was sexual immorality in the church Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 of such a nature that that not even the Gentiles would tolerate there were lawsuits among believers which was common in the commerce of Corinth and other places in the Roman Empire there was pride in that church there was drunkenness in that church and compounding all of this there were people who had traveled to Corinth after Paul left that were false apostles claiming to be apostles of Jesus Christ but whom Paul exposes as being false apostles of Jesus Christ and when they came to Corinth they attacked Paul and Paul's ministry they undermined his authority they tried to undermine his credibility they questioned and challenged his integrity. They did this on several fronts. We can pick it up by the way Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Evidently, they used even the fact that he didn't fulfill his plan to travel to them for an extended visit as a sign of his cowardliness and a sign of his weakness. They used that to try to prove he wasn't trustworthy. He says yes and no. And he just operates according to the flesh. So he says this is what he's going to do, and he doesn't do it. And so these false apostles are in the church at Corinth saying, why are you following him? Why are you listening to a man like that? He doesn't even keep his word. He's a coward. 
Paul refers to these accusations in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. Verses 1, 2, and 3, he writes, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. Now, he's quoting these guys. They say, oh yeah, when Paul's here, he's just real mealy-mouthed. His letters are bold. Oh, he writes like he's something, a tiger. But when he gets among us, he's a little kitty cat. He's a coward. Paul says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 10, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show my boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. This is against those false apostles who've come in trying to undermine his credibility. They questioned his authority as an apostle. I mean, after all, he wasn't one of the original twelve. There's some who think that these false apostles would have been among the 500 who saw Jesus after he came back from the dead. And so they said, oh, we actually saw the risen Christ upon his resurrection before he ascended into heaven. Paul can't say that. He wasn't among us. They pointed out to all the problems that he had. You're going to listen to a guy who's had as much trouble as Paul has had who's been in much difficulty and suffered so much as he has suffered. Why, they said, even when he was here in Corinth, he didn't even take a salary among you. He didn't take a salary from, from you. He wasn't worthy enough for you even to pay for his work. How can you follow a man like this? This weakling. This Johnny-come-lately apostle. That was the attitude. And Paul heard all this. He knew all this. So he has all of this in mind when he writes this letter. And in and through this letter, as we will see from the very first verse, Paul asserts and defends his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And as he does so, he attacks the erroneous idea that if a man is rich, then he must be blessed of God. If a man is blessed of God, then he's not going to have any problems. If a man is right with God, walking with God, then he's going to have everything go his way. And if a man has things not go his way, then it's obvious he's not right with God. Because the blessed life is the life that is free from trials and hardship, free from obvious weakness. It is a life basically of ease. What Paul shows so eloquently and passionately in this letter is that the power and the blessing of the Christian life is not found in human exploits or outward successes, but rather is found in the person and work of the crucified, risen Savior. The power of the Christian life is not in things that a man could accomplish on his own. The power of the Christian life is found in Jesus Christ, who by His life, death, and resurrection has shown God has all power to accomplish His purposes. It is gospel power that a Christian has. And gospel power is put on display in human weakness. Unlike so many of these super apostles, that's what he calls them in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 5, Paul has no interest in boasting about himself. He talks about himself in this letter, but you 
see that he does so reluctantly time after time after time. He's not interested in talking about his accomplishments, talking about what he's done, what he's seen, what he's experienced, because he knows the truth. And the truth is that in reality, he really is weak. Paul is aware of his specific personal weaknesses. But those weaknesses are no problem for him. Because as he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God in His wisdom has so worked that His grace is sufficient for all of His people's weaknesses. So our weaknesses are no barrier to God. In fact, he says, God's power is perfected in weakness. This is what makes 2 Corinthians so useful for us today. It clears away all the confusion about what a true Christian is and what is involved in living a joy-filled, victorious Christian life. If you read this letter, understand it, and believe it, then you will throw away all of the health, wealth, teaching that permeates so much of the American religious scene today. You won't listen to it. You'll realize how deadly it is. How deceitful it is. That way of teaching that is found on the airwaves every day says why if you just have enough faith, if you give enough money, if you follow these steps, if you say these words, then you will experience all of the outward blessings of prosperity that God's just waiting to pour out on you, but you got to do your part. Joel Osteen is perhaps the most likable, eloquent proponent of this type of heresy. And yet, Joel Osteen is looked upon and followed by millions who call themselves Christians today. Listen to what Osteen teaches in a letter to his church, he writes this, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny He's laid out for us. And then he says in his best-selling book, Your Best Life Now, God has already done everything He's going to do. The ball is now in your court. If you want success, if you want wisdom, if you want to be prosperous and healthy, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and over your family. Do this, A, B, C, D, and God's just going to do what He's waiting to do once you do your part. Now compare that. Compare Joel Osteen's vision of the Christian life to the Apostle Paul. Listen to what Paul writes in this letter, chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every, in every, every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in, the body, in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, 
we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You hear the difference? Speak these words over yourself and your family. You'll get everything you want. Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have all kinds of trials. Our outward lives are wasting away. Inwardly, we're renewed. Not by speaking words of supposed faith that will prosper us outwardly, but will renew us by the power of a crucified, risen Savior. So, see, these two views of the Christian life are diametrically opposed to one another. They come from two mutually exclusive, incompatible Incompatible understandings of salvation. One comes from a popular preacher in Houston, Texas. The other comes from an apostle of Jesus Christ who wrote Scripture. And you can't follow them both. And so we need what Paul writes to this church in Corinth in what we call 2 Corinthians to help clear up confusion about what real Christianity is. What the Gospel is. And how the Gospel works. We will be encouraged to live lives of faith in that gospel as we understand this book and apply it to our lives so that we can experience the power of that gospel in the midst of our own personal weaknesses and trials. Paul wrote several letters to the church at Corinth. We only have two of them in our Bibles. In fact, 2 Corinthians is probably, most likely, the fourth letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, he refers to a previous letter that he wrote. So in 1 Corinthians 5.9, he refers to his earlier letter that he sent to them to abstain from sexual immorality. Now we do not have that letter he refers to in 1 Corinthians 5.9. But after that letter, he wrote what we have as 1 Corinthians. Probably six or seven months after he left Corinth from and went to Ephesus. And then... He wrote what is often called a severe letter to the church at Corinth, or a letter of tears. If you look at 2 Corinthians 2, verses 3 and 4, he refers to this letter. He says, And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction, an anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, that letter that he refers to in those verses, we don't have that in our Bibles either. So what we have is this. The fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth is our second Corinthians. Our first Corinthians is the second letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth. But there is a earlier letter, an earlier letter, the first one, and a third letter that did not survive is not a part of Scripture. The nature of this letter is important for us to think 
carefully about. We need to understand what provoked it, how it was written, why it was written. He probably wrote it over months, even in some of his travels, before it was finally mailed. We get some sense there's a, a jerkiness about it. As we read through it, you'll see this, where he takes off on one subject, he stops, and he comes back and picks up something that he started on earlier, as if he's getting more information along the way. In the three or four years since Paul had left Corinth, false apostles have come into the church, and they've wreaked havoc among the believers there, and Paul writes to refute those false apostles and hopefully to rescue the church from their influence. But he also wants to remind them, and so he writes this letter to remind them of a promise that they have made to contribute to a mission effort that's going to Jerusalem. Uh, there had been poverty come to the church in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, because of a famine, because of persecution. And so Paul is taking up a collection among churches that he planted to send a relief offering to Jerusalem. They promised to do it in Corinth, but because of the tense relationships that had developed between Paul and them, they'd not followed through on that. So in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we have Paul reminding them of this and instructing them on how to give. And so the, the very clearest teachings we have anywhere in the Bible on Christian giving. You want to know how you should handle your money? You want to know how you should give? Read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where Paul lays it out in light of a crucified, risen Savior. He also wants to explain his plans to the Corinthians, specifically why he did not come to them as he said he wanted to come to them at the end of 1 Corinthians. Why he had not yet had a second extended visit with them. And he wants to commend their repentance and encourage them to continue in their repentance against these false teachers. Titus had brought him a good word saying that the letter that he had written had landed hard upon them, but many had taken it to heart and there was repentance among many. Not all, but he wants to encourage that repentance and encourage them to continue to stand against false teachers, to live in repentance and faith, reminding them that this is just basic Christianity. In and through this letter, we have various doctrines that are highlighted as well. The fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians is full of biblical doctrine. We find in the 13th chapter, or the 12th chapter, Paul speaking about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and His grace. Reconciliation, atonement, justification are all in that fifth chapter. Paul also gives us throughout this letter incredible insights into gospel ministry. How should those who handle the Word of God and teach the Word of God to God's people conduct themselves, think, and respond? He gives us great insight into what it means to be a real Christian. In one sense, you could almost call this letter like an MRI of the Christian life so that we get the insider's perspective. We get to see what's really going on, what is not unusual, what is a way of responding to challenges and difficulties that come up. Obviously, when you read 2 Corinthians, you see immediately it's a very autobiographical letter because his critics have cast doubt on his apostleship, on his person, and on his teaching, Paul has to take up that challenge in writing this letter knowing that he is writing to some people, very people that he himself led to Christ, he himself poured his life into, who now have question marks in their minds about him, who now are doubtful of his life in ministry. And so he writes trying to convince them, those who are still harboring these questions, these doubts, of his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, his trustworthiness ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
to win such people back, Paul reminds them about specific experiences in his own life. He lets them in on some of his inner thinking, his inner emotions. It's a very emotional letter, in fact. Paul reveals more about his inner struggles in this letter than he does in any other letter that he writes. You want to know about Paul? You want to know what Paul actually was like, what his life was like? Read 2 Corinthians. You'll gain more insight than in anything else he wrote. You'll read about his discouragement. In fact, you'll read about the apostle being so discouraged he despaired of life. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10. You'll read about him being afflicted and perplexed, not knowing what to do. Chapter 4, verse 8. You'll read of him being weary and fearful. Chapter 7, verse 5. You'll read how he takes and responds to being slandered by people in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 and verse 10. It's a very personal letter. Again, you, you'll read more about Paul's own experiences here than anywhere else. For example, look at chapter 11. Look at chapter 11 when he begins to take on these so-called super apostles, these false apostles. In verse 21, right in the middle of verse 21, listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-one. He writes, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me for my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. Paul says, reluctantly so, let me just remind you about my life. Let me remind you of what I've been through for the sake of the name. I'm being questioned about my loyalty to Christ. My service to Christ as an apostle. Let me compare my resume with the resume of these people who have captured your attention now and are undermining my authority as an apostle. Paul speaks in this letter of his exalted spiritual experiences. This is where he learned, we learn that he was given a vision of things that were too great even to talk about. In chapter 12, verses 2, 3, and 4, he says, speaking of himself, I know a man, he's talking about himself, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise whether in the body, out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. It's in this letter that we learn about Paul's frustrated prayer life and deep burden. Have you ever been frustrated in your prayers? Have you ever thought, I don't know why God isn't answering my prayers. Why isn't God doing what I'm asking Him to do? It makes so much sense to me be so good in so many ways. I see it 
if he would only do this. Paul had that experience. Chapter 12, verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. We don't know what it was, but it was something painful, like a thorn stuck in your side. And it was something that was wicked because it was a messenger from Satan. Paul wanted to be free from it. Wouldn't it make sense to be free from this if you're an apostle? Couldn't you serve the Lord better if you had this taken out of your life? This is what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. The apostle of Jesus Christ three times says, Lord, take this from me. I want to serve you better. I want to do all that I can. And this is a weight around my neck. Please remove it from me. Three times he asked God to take it away, but God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul opens up his heart to us in this letter. As he puts it in chapter 6, verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. In doing so, Paul has given us realistic and therefore healthy glimpses into what the life of a true Christian looks like. How does faith operate when it has been betrayed? Where's joy to be found when the comforts of life that you have experienced have been taken from you? How do you keep on going when you feel like you're going to die? When you want to die? Where is God in the midst of your weaknesses? When your physical life is wasting away, how can you find genuine peace and joy in your inner life? All of these questions are answered in 2 Corinthians. Paul addresses each one of them, most of them, autobiographically. Ultimately, what we learn as we study this letter is that peace, joy, and encouragement need to be deeply rooted not in ourselves, not in our accomplishments, not in our attainments, not in our circumstances, but in our Lord who Himself suffered greatly and gave Himself up on a cross to save us from our sins, and then rose from the dead, never to die again. The great 18th century New England pastor, Jonathan Edwards, wonderful theologian, leader in the Great Awakening, he once wrote this, All the instruments employed by God in the promotion of His work have been greatly tried. Their labors have been mingled with their tears. And they have not only suffered from their own personal share of human imperfection, but have found in the ignorance, the perverse dispositions, and the unholy practices of others their sharpest sorrows. They have been grieved by foes, but more injured and vexed by pretended friends. That perfectly describes Paul. He was a man who knew grief, who knew trial, who knew vexation, and much of that was because of what was happening in this church that he had poured himself into. So the great burden with which he writes is expressed in the very first couple of verses of the letter and continues to be expressed throughout the rest of the letter. Paul writes this letter to defend his apostleship in order to protect the church at Corinth because he knows that apostolic authority 
preserves a church's vitality. Apostolic authority preserves a church's vitality. Before we finish with this overview this morning, I want to direct your attention to the first two verses of the letter. Just real quickly, look at the introduction. There's nothing highly unusual about it. It is very natural and normal in Paul's writings to address the letter this way. But given the context of Corinth, it is filled with significance and it signals how he's going to address the concerns that he has throughout the rest of the letter. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Corinthians 1. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul begins by announcing himself, explaining that he writes as an apostle who has divine authority. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's been put into the office of apostle. Jesus himself called Paul to this work. Paul tells about this in Acts. In Acts chapter 9, we have the account recorded by Luke of how God called Paul. And then twice in the book of Acts, Paul retells the story. The last time is in Acts chapter 26 when he's in prison before King Agrippa. Listen to the way he describes his call to Agrippa in Acts 26, beginning in verse 12. He says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which, in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's Paul's retelling of how he became a Christian and an apostle. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, not because I put myself in the position, but by the will of God. I mean, Paul wasn't looking to be an apostle. He wasn't running for the office of apostle. He was on his way to kill people like the apostles and those who followed the apostles' teaching when Jesus showed up changed his life, and he never got over it, and he never lost that sense that this was God's will. Therefore, when Paul preached or taught or wrote as an apostle, it was God Himself who was preaching, teaching, speaking through him. For the church of Corinth to reject or even doubt the teachings of Paul was therefore far more serious than just rejecting the ministry of a man. They were rejecting Paul and Paul's God. God Himself. That's why he writes so strongly in this letter. Apostolic authority preserves the church's vitality. Their spiritual welfare is at stake. Now brothers and sisters, the same thing is true for us today. Apostolic authority is what will preserve this church's life. This church's vitality. We are a church of Jesus Christ. He is the head 
of this church. We are under His authority, which means we are under His apostles' authority, which means that we are under the authority of the written Word of God. There are some people who erroneously think today that in order to have apostolic authority, you have to continue having apostles. And so they wrongly teach that there are apostles today, just like there were apostles like Paul and John and Peter in the first century. But that understanding is incorrect. There are no more apostles in the New Testament sense of that word. But there certainly is an abiding apostolic authority. And the apostolic ministry, the apostolic authority continues today in the written word of God. So we are an apostolic church because we're submitted to the word of God that is written. As a church, we are pre-committed to the scripture. Pre-committed. So from the get-go, from the gate, we say, whatever the word of God teaches, we're going to believe. Whatever the word of God commands, we're going to do. Wherever the word of God leads, we're going to go. Regardless of cost, regardless of consequences, our very life and vitality depend upon it. Well, not only does Paul write this letter as an apostle with divine authority, he writes it to a church and calls upon them to receive the letter as people under divine authority. Listen to the way he identifies his readers. (coughs) Excuse me. They are the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. They are God's church. Now think about Paul when he writes this. He had invested a year and a half of his life there. He planted that church. It was his blood, sweat, and tears that brought the gospel to them. His labors that saw people come to Christ and raised up to be leaders and trained and set on the right course. But Paul understood that God owned the church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he meets with the elders of Ephesus for the last time in a little town, a seaport known as Miletus. And he's talking to those Ephesian elders and he reminds them to care for the church of God that he purchased by his own blood. Every true church is a blood-bought church. We are blood-bought people here in Grace Baptist Church. We've been purchased by God At a great cost. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the one who gave up his son in order to rescue us by his death on the cross. And the one who has purchased us has rights over us. He has authority over us. Therefore, as a church, we are not free to wing it. We are people under the authority of God's word we're apostolic in the sense that we listen to and heed what god says in scripture paul reminds the corinthians of this they're god's church but he calls them saints do you see that saints saints this word means holy ones it means set apart and it's interesting with all the problems that they have going on in corinth all of the deceitfulness and wickedness and sin that's in that church he still calls them saints because as they look to Christ, despite their blemishes, despite sin that remains in them, they remain set apart by God for God. And that's true of every church of Jesus Christ. It's true of this church. This church is made up of people who've been born of God's Spirit, who've turned away from sin, who've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord 
And as such, the church is made up of saints. Now, here's a newsflash for some of you. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. You're not dependent upon some cardinal council to declare you such. You are a saint in God's eyes because that's what the Bible calls people who have been born of God's Spirit trusting Jesus. We've been set apart from the rest of the world. We belong to Him and we're called to become more and more like Him by growing in holiness and conformity to Jesus. But Paul doesn't just introduce the letter by identifying himself as an apostle with divine authority in the church as a people under divine authority. He reminds them that God in Christ is the source of their life and health. You see what he says in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a normal apostolic greeting. There's nothing unusual about it. He does this in other letters as well. Grace is favor from God that is undeserved. God be favorable to you in ways that are far beyond what you deserve. That's what he's saying. Grace to you. Peace is that which is a fruit of grace. Not just cessation of warfare, but it's that Hebrew idea, shalom, well-being, life, health in the very best sense of the word. A church's life and well-being come from God in Christ. As Paul puts it, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's equating them. They're the one source of grace and peace. What is he saying? He's reminding these Corinthian believers of what he's going to elaborate throughout this letter. That all we need comes from above. All we need is found in Jesus Christ. What we need is what Christ has already done and what He has promised to do. The grace and the peace that we need for daily living. The life and vitality that we need. They're always looking for. It comes from above. It's found in Jesus. There are some of you here today, probably, you've been looking for the purpose of your life. You've been looking for meaning. You've been looking for something more. You know there's got to be something more. And you've tried maybe a dozen or a thousand things. Maybe booze, maybe sex, maybe drugs, maybe relationships, maybe wealth, power, education. You've just been seeking all your life. And the word of this, this book, the word of the Bible, is that what you need, what you are made for, is found from above. It comes from above. It's found in Jesus. And if you've not ever trusted Jesus, today, at the beginning of this new year, is a wonderful opportunity to hear God call you and tell you, Turn away from the things that you've been pursuing. Stop chasing after those things you hope will bring life to you and look to the source of life. Look to the one who gave up his life in order to provide life for all who will trust in him. Come to Jesus. Believe Jesus. Bow to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. and You'll find in him life eternal. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, this is what we need. What we still need. It's what we need very much the same in the exact same way, just as much as what we needed when we were still dead in trespasses and sin. We needed a Savior. Today, being made alive in Christ, we still need Jesus Christ. The grace we need every day is found in Him. The peace we need every day is found in Him. And we must continue to trust Him. We need to learn to walk with Christ, accessing by faith the grace and the peace that He gives. As we do this, 
we're going to discover what the Apostle Paul discovered and what he taught, what he teaches in 2 Corinthians. God's power. God's power is manifested in our weakness. Do you feel weak? Do you feel unable to measure up to the challenges in front of you? That is no problem for God. His power, His life, His grace, His peace is manifested and given in our weakness. So look to Christ. Remember Christ. Keep trusting Christ. Walk with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for 2 Corinthians. And as we embark upon this study, we pray that You would teach us from this book this reality that what we need, what we long for, is found in Jesus Christ. We will never get that by ourselves. So we ask that you would send your spirit to teach us this truth. Show us Christ. Reveal Christ in us. Help us to find our life in him. For we pray in his name. Amen.